0: Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars, Bill Ringel here, host of my Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished experts who want to share their knowledge and experiences in order to help you be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating toward more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Rob Cross. Rob is the Edward A. Madden Professor of Global Leadership at Babson College and the co founder and research director of the Connected Commons Business Consortium. Rob Cross has authored six Harvard Business Review articles on practical approaches to enhancing collaboration. He's the co author of five books, including The Hidden Power of Social Networks. Rob lives in Babson Park, Massachusetts, and is here to talk about his book, Beyond Collaboration Overload How to Work Smarter get ahead and restore your well-being. Welcome, Rob.
1: Thank you so much for having me here. It's great to be here.
0: Tell me, when you were growing up, Rob, who's somebody who influenced or inspired
1: you? It's a great question, and it paused me for reflection a little bit there, but it would be ultimately my grandfather, who had a really big influence for me. He was one of the early pioneers in aviation in the state of Virginia and actually had the largest airport at one point and continued to pursue that as a passion in what he did throughout his life. But what I always admired about my grandfather is he kept spheres of very vibrant beyond that. So he was an avid sportsman in different ways and very involved in different kinds of charities and giving back. And I think the guiding idea from him for my whole life is really that importance of having dimensionality that really stuck with me, obviously, along with a pursuit of excellence in what you're doing.
0: When you look at your life today, what is an area that you probably wouldn't be engaged in if it hadn't been for your grandfather's influence and example?
1: So very much water sports, I will will say just as a side piece of what I do. We've always had a a boat on a lake and I've taught my kids how to ski and wakeboard and everything else. And so that's become a big part of our lives outside of work in different ways. To me, that's a really big deal, having kind of things that you're doing that create dimensionality for you. Uh, And I, of course, learned to water ski at five years old with my grandfather pulling me through a river, running with a ski rope in his hand, trying to get me up. And that's uh, persisted and will, I'm sure, go through my children to their children as well. He was
0: probably quite an athlete. If he was able to give you a water experience on skis, By running with a rope. (laughs) That's pretty impressive.
1: He he pulled it off. I I weighed a little less then. He was was an impressive man.
0: Probably didn't have to run for as long as we're imagining either. (laughs) Yet there you have two people collaborating in a very focused, efficient way, which you still remember all these years later. From your research, why is it that so much of our collaboration becomes not just unmemorable, mind-numbing? And it, it's something that we really dislike rather than look forward to.
1: That's a great question. I think what we've seen over the past decade, if not longer, is just such a confluence of events from ways that products and offerings have gotten more complex to organizations becoming de and more nimble and agile and technologies proliferating on us to constantly beyond that It's made the ability to collaborate seamless, but it's overrunning people's ability to keep up in many ways. So pre-pandemic, I would see that typically most people would say they spend 85% of their week on the phone, on email or in meetings. And as we've gone through the pandemic, that's, of course, gone up another five to eight hours. People working deeper into the night, earlier into the morning. And it's overwhelming. A lot of people that aren't able to look for ways to buy back space and time.
0: So as people are listening to you and nodding and saying, Yes, that's my life, we need to say that's not the ideal, right? It's not where we want to go to be able to have those boundaries eroded between our work and personal lives. Even though technology makes us available and the phone can ring and we can check email anywhere in the house. Why is it that it is actually counterproductive to expect to do this rather than the mistaken assumption that people think? That It's great to be able to reach out and have a question answered at eleven o'clock at night.
1: I'll answer that in two ways if I can. One would be from a productivity standpoint, and then if if you don't mind, and we can ask the question again from just a well being standpoint and how we're doing as human beings. if I start on the productivity side, ton of evidence that shows that when we block reflective time or we manage to our own rhythm of work, we, we do a lot better. And people are used to thinking about the volume of demands that come at us through email and meeting requests and things like that. What they sometimes miss is the impact of the switching costs across these different asks. So we know that just the act of looking down at a text and back up is the cognitive psychologists show a 64-second recovery. It takes us time to get back to where we were mentally, if we have a disruption that maybe an email we're answering or we go a little bit deeper back and forth on a text and we lose our thought, right, our schema or whatever we want to call it, the psychologists show that can be up to a 23-minute recovery to get back. And people get better at it over time, but the disruptions that we experience and the actual time that puts on us as well is often a missed component of collaborative overload in addition to the volume. You take this through the pandemic and what's happened is people are working to 30-minute meetings now versus hours meetings. And now we've almost doubled the number of meetings through the day. Our switching costs are higher. The intensity in those 30-minute meetings is more, right? Because you've got to be on and get stuff done. And then we end up with bigger to-do lists at the end of the day, the things you're keeping track of as you go. And it's overwhelming. What's amazing to me is most organizations can track airline receipts or other expenses down to two decimal places, but they have no understanding of these collaborative costs on people and how that time is being spent. And so what I can see from a productivity standpoint is the people that are doing better, they're much more likely to block reflective time. Usually that's up to two hour windows that they block. But the people that are really doing well, they tend to be more attuned to their rhythm of work and they manage to that. And so I would interview some people that were these highly efficient collaborators. They would tell me, gosh, the first thing I do is email to get that out of the way. And then I get on to strategic work. And then the next person I would get to, I would say, do you do email first? Get it out of the way. And, and my favorite responses were when people said, are you crazy? Why would I start with email? If I start with email, I'll never out of it eventually. And they would say, no, I, I start with the creative work. I block email in 30 or 45 minute intervals. I communicate to others what I'm doing and, and they're managing to their rhythm that way better, right? They're, they're able to push back on the system and, and get things done. And so we know that in general, the efficient collaborators are doing a number of small things like that that enable them to buy back about 18 to 24% of their time compared to average and that gives them space in different ways to invest in how they're collaborating and, and have better and better impact from a productivity standpoint.
0: Let me jump in because that is not trivial. 18 to 24% of your time is more than a day
1: during your week. That's And that's the thing that surprises people. The magic in this game that I've completely become convinced about is when we think about the things we're struggling with or the things that are big items that we think about. Cognitively, we just think about the big things. You know what I mean? The, the one project that's overwhelming us, the one boss that's a pain. And we miss all these myriad small interactions that we get pulled in. And so the trick I'm finding with the efficient collaborators is that they are much more likely to pay attention to the small and focus in on how they shift demands around themselves in, in very targeted ways. And this can be done in a bunch of different ways, very pragmatically. I find that if they'll just give me a couple of hours to look back in their calendar four months, right? You can't look back last week because we justify everything. We're wildly important in everything. But if you can look back four months, you start to create some space and you're looking for what are the routine informational requests I'm getting that I don't need to be a part of? What are the routine decisions I'm being pulled into that I'm not adding unique value? And are there portions of that I'm executing that if I could package these things and shift in the network or find other ways to have that work done, there's an enormous amount of savings that come from just doing that periodically.
0: So your work involves not just research, but the application of this research. Can you share an example of an executive or a small business leader? who was trapped by his or her own collaboration or routine and was able to apply some of these in order to carve out time to then focus on more important matters or even have more of a personal life if we dare go there.
1: I feel very passionately about what all this is doing to us as as humans as well. But I can tell you a story about Scott. So he was a life sciences executive, had run a group over the trajectory of his career. He had come into this organization scientist and not done anything major for five or 10 years. But then he was put on a product that because of that success and derivative successes, when I came in touch with him, he was running a group of about 1,800 people total in this organization. And Scott's firm was based in the Midwest. Now, what was fascinating about Scott is that Everybody thought he was going to be the next, at least the leading contender for the CEO's position. And yet when I was there and was walking down the hall with the CEO to go into the boardroom and talk about how they could decrease time to market, looking at these network analytics, he pulled me aside and said, I'd like you to look at Scott's network because we're close to letting him go. And he said it was a real mystery to them because everything they could see from the outside, Scott was doing right. He'd come in and he'd taken layers out of the hierarchy. He'd servant-based mindset to leadership. He was very accessible and didn't see status and work. He jumped in to solve problems whenever he could. And the reality is what that had done to him when we looked at the analytics is just completely overwhelmed. Somebody who was very good at a certain level and could scale what he was doing at a certain point. When he hit at that point in his career, it overwhelmed him. And this happens to every, everybody I've looked at, not just... He
0: basically in his 40s, he'd been at the company a few years. What's the context for his age and the length of service?
1: He was early 40s, about 20 plus years in the organization. And this... As we come back, ideally, to the well-being side, you see a trend in here where people's responsibilities grow, and they get their kind of late 30s, early 40s, and then they have personal obligations, right? Whatever decisions they've made, those things creep up around them, and it gets overwhelming. And in particular, we can see performance-wise, when people get into those positions, they start to falter, they become less innovative, turnover around them goes up, and there's a lot of negative things that happen. And then again, health-wise, we'll come back to, we see it. It's a real persistent problem and a huge driver of stress that's, that's having an impact.
0: When you're able to analyze the situation for Scott, what was a part of the intervention and how did it transform that situation?
1: So he did what I was just describing. He sat down with a coach and they looked back in his calendaring and email system and they were focused on what are these routine things that have crept around him. And so that part of it was structural. Right, Every piece of what I focus on with leaders when they're trying to get out of an overload position is saying, are there ways that you can shift kinds of informational requests you're getting, kinds of decisions you're being pulled into? Can you shift the way you're interacting with other groups so that you're not responsive to their needs, but you're structuring in the right way to do the work? And again, it's surprising to people. He he found about 17, 18% of his time just in the accumulation of all these small interactions that weren't adding value. But then he, and this is part of the toolkit. That we built out on this, he went a step further and also focused in on how am I causing the problem. And I think this has been the biggest surprise to me in the overload work. When we started, I was completely convinced the enemy was out there. It was time zones, emails, demanding bosses, and nasty clients. Everything was coming at us. And I came out the other end completely convinced that at least 50% of the problem is us. And we we all have these triggers to jump in when we shouldn't. And for Scott, it was he had a servant-based mindset to leadership. I'd say, great thing. But at a certain point, in a certain way, if you become the path of least resistance for everybody, then it's going to overwhelm. So for him, he was really thinking carefully about how do I make sure that I'm aware of this trigger that leads me to jump in when I shouldn't and guard against it. And people have different triggers. As I look at all this work, for some, it's accomplishment, for some, it's fear, status, different things like that.
0: And what's true for everyone listening, for everyone who you've worked with, is that they often are positively driven to make a contribution. They come about from some benefit or perceived benefit. Some of them are off, but largely there's some positive outcome that's being sought and achieved by that, but the cost is so high, they don't realize that they've got to make an adaptation in order to be more successful, especially as you level up in an organization. Isn't that true?
1: Completely. Every one of these drivers, when I I talk about these triggers or beliefs that lead us to jump, the fascinating thing is generally they're all good things up to a point. And it's just when you pass that point in today's hyper-connected world that then overload starts to happen. And one of the insidious things about collaborative overload is that it feels good right up until it does. You feel like you're in the thick of things and people are relying on you and everything is great right up until that last project hits or your significant other says no more and it starts a a downward spiral. I'll tell you one of the eye-opening things for Scott in this case because he will, you know, these ideas with me when I'm in that organization is he was physically unhealthy, like to the point of not doing well. I met him and I could tell he wasn't holding up well even on the first meeting and so they did what i didn't know was possible they sent him to a it was a yoga retreat camp for 10 days and he was out in the woods and part of it was to say can you reset and physically recalibrate how you're managing but the key thing they did is they took away his devices and that plural he had two devices he was constantly checking and so when he tells this story with me one he's and
0: the one he kept in his sock when he went to the yoga retreat
1: constantly checked in a quiet way but he said the first day was like a heroin withdrawal we know that's not too far off the truth, right? The neuroscientists show us that we're getting these hits of dopamine or other other chemicals every time we're checking. And we entrain ourselves into these patterns pretty quickly. But for him, the most telling story is he gets through the 10 days, survives it, he's okay, back to the office 11 days out. First thing he is on email, and he wants to get caught up and there's thousands of them. But he said for him, the biggest eye opener for him was he was going down something that happened 10 days ago, felt his blood pressure rising, I've got to jump in. And, And the key for me is it wasn't from a micromanagement standpoint, it was, I got. I have to show my team presence. I have to show them I'm here and involved. And then he would see two or three emails later, the thing was all fine because it had happened 10 days ago. And as he reflected on it, he started to recognize that he would jump in in these micro moments. And the manifestation of that overload may not happen for six, eight, 12 weeks. But as people started having to check with him, manage him, it just really propagated in big ways. And that's what we see with everybody. I think the hardest thing to be aware of is where am I causing my own problems in this game, depending on what that trigger is. Probably
0: with perspective, he could see that he was actually denying His team the opportunity to step up and become stronger leaders by continually jumping in and looking to service them at this level that was no longer appropriate.
1: Exactly right. And statistically, the way we see that is when we're actually doing the network analytics, we find that the attrition rates around the overloaded people tend to go up as high as 200% compared to leaders that are systematic about pushing that down. That's at the heart of it, right? Those people feel like they're answering everything, moving at a blistering pace, but they don't see the people two layers out. They can't get to them or they don't see the fact that people that you're actually in meetings with, but you're constantly in your phone, not talking to them and and disengaging that way because of overload. It's a real it's a real problem that tends to manifest.
0: Let's define terms, even though we're a ways into this. Let's define terms so people listening to this can have a very clear idea of what we're talking about when we speak about collaboration. And then what's the point? where it becomes overload rather than effective.
1: So for me, collaboration isn't just a a webinar right or a zoom call or an email it's the pattern of people that you're interacting with to get work done or to fulfill what you want to and kind of dimensionality you want to play outside of life people have very different thresholds for the size of the connectivity they can manage and there's a lot of different factors that come into that when we're looking at overload and when we see it become a problem quantitatively it's when you know more than 25 percent of the people that you're interacting with are saying they have to have more of your time to be successful than that That starts to be the first trigger for us. We see that people tend to start to fall in a negative spiral when that happens. More qualitatively, what I'm always asking people is just plot on a line the degree to which your life is more reactive or proactive in what you're trying to have accomplished. And if there's one core idea in this that has again become really clear to me through all these interviews, is we have tremendous ability to shape what we do and who we do it with, but we give that away a lot of times. And we fall into these reactive postures, trying to answer all emails, trying to be always. And ultimately, it starts to pull you in a direction that doesn't reflect your own set of priorities. And that's going to obviously differ for people. But that's really what I'm looking at as to what degree if you let that happen in this overload drive. And
0: I just want to voice an objection that I think that you've heard hundreds of times before when you present this to managers and they say, but it feels so good to get items checked off the checklist. It feels so good to be in the thick of things and have everyone call. Calling you and asking for your opinion, your advice, and your support to make decisions. How do you break that cycle and let people know you're in the midst of a grind when that happens?
1: I think there's a lot of ways. The need for accomplishment, right? The checking list idea. That's me. I know for my own kind of tendency, that's what I tend to drive to. And I think what you're trying to do with people like that is reflect a little bit on what am I, meant? I get these jolts of satisfaction from the small accomplishments, answering something directly versus connecting people to somebody that could help them solve. All it around me, or just getting email emptied out. And then the, the question for me is what is that keeping you from doing professionally that would be more meaningful? And then, really importantly to me personally, as we've done all this work on the well being side, I can see that people that maintain at least two and usually three groups outside of work do much, much better in managing the the stress and other elements of today. They're much more likely to be charting their course versus having their course charted for them. And so you ask that question of how many times are you fighting through to that empty email box or you're trying to help directly? And is that keeping you from these groups that maybe you've fallen out of? And again, it's that kind of late 30s, early 40s that you start to see the the downward spiral on health for so many people today because they're not able to take that time and they're falling out of the groups that, that kept them healthy to begin with. So for me, that's always the question. That's the only thing I see that works is if you can get people to reflect on what am I letting go? And if I use that in the moment, then that'll help me guard against following my own tendencies a little bit too deeply.
0: What I love about that approach is that it lets people come up with their own response to what they're missing. It's not coming down top down and you're missing out on these other opportunities, which could make people suspicious and put their defense shields up because they don't want to be told that they're missing out on things. They'll simply argue that they're handling it and dealing with it some other way. But when you ask them to come up with the ideas and the opportunities that they're missing, whether it be family, whether it be friends, whether outside social outlets or hobbies or avocations or groups that they want to contribute to through charity work, then it becomes, real then it becomes something that they're starting to own and speaking of which rob i want to ask you if you're ready to own the my quest for the best lightning round
1: here we go i'm going to give it my best
0: at the beginning of the interview i asked who was influential growing up and you talked about your grandfather when you were a teenager rob what's a song that you
1: loved? Jesse's Girl. Jesse's Girl. It was a Rick Springfield, so I'm not going to sing it yet.
0: (laughs) In dealing with overload, what's one of the ways through your research that you've found that you can decouple yourself from your own bad habits of
1: overload? Biggest thing is having dimensionality right, in your life. You have to have things that pull you in those directions that keep you from being sucked in, in in different ways. What are
0: one or two things that are part of your outside dimensionality?
1: So for me, I'm a, I'm a big cyclist, like about 150 miles a week right now. And it's not about the biking. This is really important to me, but it, I'm with these bunch of old guys that are just not going quietly and we pull each other through on tough days and we formed authentic connections in the same way that the Jesse's Girl song gets me off task and gets me in a moment. And in a, I, I think that's really critical that you think about the groups that you're moving into. So for me, it's biking, it's tennis, it's church that we're a part of, a set of these spheres that just keep me, you know, actively engaged in life and not just letting, you know, work take over in different ways.
0: So is there a particular tool or system that you've found that helps you stay on track and productive that you weren't using a couple of years ago?
1: The biggest thing for me usually is being cognizant of my calendar. So it's less about a specific device. Now I do use network analytics in the background. I'm looking at where and how my time is going and if there are certain spheres that I'm over-investing time in, but that may be beyond what most people would think is normal but I find that to be productive for me because I do believe very much in reaching out to people on the fringe of my network and that's how I continue to grow.
0: I do that on a weekly basis at the very least on Sundays reflect and say what was my week like and was it bringing me closer to what I said I was going to do or what adaptations do I need to make for the coming week.
1: So the 200 interviews I just finished was 100 women 100 men entirely around well-being in this case. Trying to understand how we're getting overwhelmed at these were all all very successful people, right? 20 great companies gave me 10 of their best most successful people, and and yet there were about one in ten of those interviews. They were living much more on their terms, and you could just sense it. Everybody I would talk to would be like, "Life is great. I'm busy. I'm barely getting by, but life is great." And then one in ten, it'd be like, "No, I'm, I'm pretty clear on what I want to do and what I want to accomplish, and I'm building that into my life." That's a hallmark. That kind of do you have a broad set of objectives? Are you evaluating it right? And you don't hit it week to week. It's going to shift, but over time, it pulls you in a trajectory that's just different than people that get too reactive to all the demands.
0: What would you say is the best life advice you ever received?
1: It's funny because received this from my children growing up and it came from a grandparent not the grandfather but they said with your kids always make sure they have three groups growing up and that, that way if anything happens in one group that they're not getting along well with they have two other places life isn't a tragedy oddly enough later that's what I discovered in all my research it works for adults too. <laughs> have at least two or three groups and your identity broader than just in one sphere and it gives you greater confidence and greater wisdom willingness to, to push back in time. So it was funny you asked that question. That was what popped to mind immediately.
0: Fabulous. How we learn from different generations, if we're just open to it, what would you say is the best $100 purchase that you've made in the last six months?
1: I would say tennis paraphernalia. Let me say it that way. So it may not have been the Yonix, but shoes and other things. But that's been a second, for me, a second sphere that I've been moving into. For me, tennis is a byproduct of the fact that it's forming a set of relationships and creating conversations I wouldn't have if I was just in my bubble. Suddenly, it's tennis is the cohering thing, but I'm hanging out with people from different political parties, work in different industries, all sorts of different backgrounds. And I find that to be wildly rewarding.
0: Yeah, I find that as well. Complete this prompt. I I know that i'm being successful
1: for me i know that when i'm being successful when i am more true to objectives that i have when i get react in situations that's when i tend to be less engaging of others i tend to come into situations with what i'm trying to narrowly get done and i don't talk about my ideas or present what i'm doing to my team not just audiences but my team in ways that gets them energized and engaged so when i'm successful i have tended to not create stress on myself and, and come into situations well and am positioning things in ways that's more mutually beneficial. I find that creates a pull and an engagement and innovation that's really vibrant for me.
0: Here's a second prompt. I know I can recognize a leader that has effectively learned to manage overload when I see or am aware of this.
1: So what I see with the leaders that I can see that are managing overload more is that they are further out on the time horizon with what they're trying to accomplish and what they're trying to do overall. I know that's an abstract idea, but what has really impressed me is that most of the people that I find to be the most successful, they are much more like, To, for example, form boards of advisors around them, just people they listen to, not with people that'll get them to the next layer in the hierarchy. But for example, Caroline, a very senior software executive in Silicon Valley, ran a group of several hundred in in her larger organization. She had flown up the hierarchy there and had been put in many different roles that on the surface, you'd think, how in the world could somebody be successful across all these different roles? What she did that was amazing to me is she formed a board of directors that was six people that just showed up in life the way she wanted to. And so they were younger and older than her. There was you know, somebody from a different religious affiliation. And she said those people's discussions with them around what's worth doing helped her shape a role that was always more meaningful to her over time. And so it's at that level where people are further out on the curve. They're more proactive in shaping their future in terms of how they're you know, building a network, how they're pursuing objectives. Those are the people that haven't gotten caught in a friend's when they're responding to email at all hours or things like that.
0: Being more proactive. And also I go back to the time quadrants of they're focused more on things that are important but not urgent.
1: Right. And the question is, how do you create that buffer? I think that's the challenge. I actually think we have a lot more latitude to find that 18 to 24% time, but that's really the orientation in all of this work. I'm never coming back to leaders and saying, you need to go form these kind of connections, even though I know statistically, which ones are going to matter. I can't start that way. We have to start with how do you buy back time first and create some space.
0: So you can reinvest the time. What would you say is the most important habit, routine, or belief that you've stopped in the last year that's brought you the most personal pleasure or satisfaction?
1: Email, first thing in the morning. So, again, I'm a need-for-accomplishment person, right? That's if I see something that can be done in two minutes, it'll take me 10, but I'll try to fit it in. So, for me, I just focused in on dumping email, getting rid of email early, and I do more creative stuff and block time to to get it done as a way to to take a little bit more control over what I'm doing.
0: Rob, let's go back to the issue of health because overload has has such an insidious effect on our stress, developing anxiety, as well as our overall general physiological well-being. What is your research uncover that would be new to people about how it's important to manage overload because of its impact on our personal health?
1: Yeah. I'll give you a story here, and it, it started with this work I just literally just finished a couple of weeks ago with 200 interviews around well-being, so 100 women, 100 men, and that's been a really big pivot point for me in my career over the past five or six years really emphasizing all these interviews to get to things that people are doing, ways they're living their lives. We started on this to see every single model of what creates a happy person out there has relationships somewhere in it. And and yet, then there's no... Discussion in all of these around what do people do if they lose those connections? They get busy in life, like we we're talking about, late thirties, early forties. They fall out of groups that were important. How do they sustain them? Or just as importantly, what are they actually getting from those connections? Right? Is it just sitting in a bar that matters, or is it something else that you people are building connections? And so we really focus the work on the positive relational drivers of well-being, and that to me means ways that connections helped people maintain physical health over time, maintain a sense of growth in and out of work, derive a sense of purpose and meaning in their lives and be resilient. So resilience is just one example, but everybody is used to thinking about resilience as I have this internal grit, right? I've got fight. And yet if you ask people how they got through tough stretches in their lives or big setbacks, we have a tendency to fall back on others in at least eight predictable ways. We turn to others for perspective in a situation, to see a path forward, for empathy, to laugh at the absurdity of the situation. So that's an enormous resource for people that have built authentic connections and know how to tap into. So that was a big piece of our work, but on the stress side, I started off, these discussions. And I'd say, tell me about a time in your life you were becoming more healthy. I'd hear great stories. And then on the very first interview, I just backed it down. And I said, what got you stuck to begin with? What got you to that point that you had to take really concerted action to become more healthy? And the most amazing thing happened, the very first interview, 45 minutes in, of these two this person said, pause, was like this. And she said, just like my gas. And so we spent 45 minutes tearing that apart. And what it really led me to see is what I'm calling micro stresses. And it's the accumulation and the way all these collaborative of technologies and the ways that people can get to us generate small stresses in our lives. So this can be sensing misalignment with a colleague. It can be seeing a team member that needs to be coached, a client that may not be happy. It can be a text from a child that you can't quite tell if they're really in trouble or if that was just them getting over something in the next minute. So we go through our days and we're hit with 20, 25, 30 of these. And we go home exhausted and we can't quite put our fingers right on what just happened. It's not one big thing. It's these accumulation of small in ways that we're not designed cognitively to see and to say, I need to go do something about it. I think it's having a major negative impact on us. And that's been a big piece of our work recently. And then the last chapter of the book is around how do you see that and do things different?
0: One thing that we did early on was we said, no phones at a meal table. You don't even put them on the table because when they light up, When they bing, it's already distracted us and changed the ambiance, the mood, our focus for anyone's phone. So we turn off our phones and we leave them off the table that we just don't allow phones in our, our household at meal tables. I guess that's one of the big things that we've done that I think has made a compound benefit over time. Is there anything like that that you've also found that might not be obvious to people as to how important it can be to avoid these micro-stresses?
1: The micro-stress tend to happen in three ways. First are these interactions that drain our capacity. They keep us from being able to get done what we have to get done. Second are interactions that hit us negatively from an emotional standpoint. Concern over taking care of others, like through COVID, for example, that creates more emotional stress, whether it's family-related or work-related. And third are challenges to identify ways that our interactions are pushing us from who we thought we were going to be at the beginning of the journey. But just as an example, if I grab the first drain to capacity, one of the ones that surprises people a lot of times is there are so many different kinds of collaborations happening in most people's work today. And we have one team that maybe we're responsible for, but then usually we have four or five other things that we're a part of, task force, committees, whatever. If you happen to be in charge of one or four other people and they're on five or six things themselves, they come back two weeks later from a m- meeting and only you're 95% done, let's say, right? So it's it's... It's not a big mess, but each of them are 95% close to what we'd all agreed we were going to do. That accumulates to a 20% impact on you. And and it's a weird thing because you're stuck in the moment of, do I challenge that and say, no, 95% isn't good enough? Or do you fight through and produce the result? Most people choose to fight through it, but then they've trained those people that 95% is, is good enough. So that's the nature of these micro stresses that I see is that they're all in these small moments. What I find is that you need to pay attention to and build a culture that doesn't allow things like that to happen. Their first and second order effects for these things. One bit of advice based on all these people talking about projects or work that just turned into nightmare situations. Most times it happened because people didn't set agreements early. I use the word contract, but I don't mean that in a legalistic sense. But people would say, we need to go do X, Y, or Z. And somebody very well-intentioned says, I can do that. And they jump in and they haven't thought through what's actually required and what's all the collaborations that have to happen and nobody's agreed to all that. And then it just morphs over six months, nine months, 12 months into a mess. So if I had one idea, that would be the the key idea is just be really clear, really precise early. And it tends to avoid things downstream.
0: That is such important advice that I hope people listening will really take to heart. Rob Cross, I want to thank you so much for joining me on my quest for the best. You've been incredibly generous with your insights and experiences and advice to people on how to avoid collaboration overwhelm. You brought out a great story about how your grandfather inspired you to have different spheres of life that you're interested in and engaged in. You've talked about the evidence and importance of reflective time. And the most successful people are those who are able to block out that time. So it becomes a regular part of their routine. We've talked about collaboration. Overload can be marked by it feels so good to keep doing this right up until it doesn't feel good at all. And then it can really be a collapse. We talked about the example of Scott managing his team, how everything looked like it was going well from the outside. And some people were thinking that he was on the verge of becoming CEO. The reality was he was on the verge of being let go. And the difference that it made to really take that 10-day retreat and unplug, not just from the company, but from his devices so that he could come back with fresh eyes and notice how his team stepped up in the gap get- to resolve their own difficulties and questions and made them stronger. We talked about how it's important in the connected age in order to make sure that that you have a good balance between your proactive and reactive activities as a leader. And finally, we concluded with the importance of having clear contracts, not a legalistic sense, but contracts that really defined what we can expect of each other in order to reduce some of those micro stresses that build up. As we know, stresses lead to strains, which lead to falter, which could lead to creating very unhealthy situations, both in our bodies as well as in our work relationships. So for these and so many more reasons, I want to thank you, Rob, for joining me on my quest for the best.
1: Thank you so much. I appreciate it. It was a real treat to be here.
0: Rob Cross, author of Information Overload. Before we say goodbye for now, where is it that we could find out more about you and your work online?
1: That would be great. It's www.robcross.org is the personal site. And then of course, um, we're doing a lot of research, as I mentioned in the Connected Commons. And so that's certainly a group to, to look at and pull down all the things that we make available.
0: We're going to link to your book and also your social media to make it super easy for people who are listening to this episode to go to the show notes and find ways to connect with you and keep up with what's going on in your busy but not overwhelmed world.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on my quest for the best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app, so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insight for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback, and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review My Quest for the Best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com.